I'm going to speak from over here because, uh, sorry about that, Isaac, <laughs> because I've got some PowerPoint things behind me. Uh, and if I'm standing over there, you'll be doing the, the tennis uh, thing going between the pictures and me. Uh, we were advertising the fact that there's a combined prayer meeting uh, at Church Unlimited tonight, praying for the city. Uh, due to COVID uh, level two, that's been cancelled. Uh, the good thing is it's been cancelled because they normally get well over 100 people. <laughs> so that's encouraging. And maybe on a day that we've moved to COVID level two, my opening illustration might seem a little bit more poignant uh, today. But Lord, I just pray that in your name you might speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. On the 26th of January this year, the uh, UK commemorated passing 100,000 deaths in that country from COVID. That's a huge number. That's a stark, chilling reality. And as part of their coverage of the day, the BBC interviewed religious leaders uh, and uh, they interviewed the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby. And they asked him, how do you grieve for such a large number of people? And also they asked him where he finds hope. And the interviewer then asked, uh, well, what would Welby say to people who asked the question, where was God in the midst of all this? You know, which is actually a question I've, I've heard a lot of people ask in relationship to COVID because it's the first sort of big pandemic that our generations have kind of faced. And it's also the question that I often get asked as people uh, face uh, difficulties and tragedies. Where is God? And Welby was silent for a while and then he said that you needed to be weary of people who would offer a snappy answer to that question. That there really were no easy answers. Um, he spoke of wrestling with that himself when his daughter had uh, been killed in a car crash. Uh, he talked about the fact that during that time he felt cut off from God. He was angry at heaven that such a thing could happen. He talked of praying with other people uh, in similar situations who wrestled with that very same question of the fact that the Psalms are full of God's people wrestling with that same sense of God's abandon, uh, absence. And he offered two thoughts. The first was that while it was not easy, what got him through the grief of his daughter's death was, ironically... Um, the fact that God was with them was the fact that even though he just didn't, couldn't understand it, there was the abiding awareness of God's presence. And the other was that in Jesus Christ, God himself entered into and experienced the pain and the suffering and tragedy of Christian life. In Jesus, God came and suffered alongside us and for us. And that brings us to the passage that we're looking at this morning. Jesus' cry from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Here is Jesus who had said, I and the Father are one, now calling out in the midst of the most horrific of circumstances, uh, what is that most human of prayers? What is known as the cry of desolation? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Where are you, God? And leading into Easter this year, we're working our way through Jesus' sayings on the cross. And the series is called New Life and Dying Words, and this is the fourth in that series. And each of these sayings has something important and significant to tell us about Jesus. Each of them speaks to what is at the heart of God, what is at the heart of the gospel, that is, what is going on at the cross. And also they speak to the very heart of the human condition, very much what it is to be human. Before we get into that explanation and exploration, I want to make a couple of introductory remarks. The first is that there are only three times that Jesus' words are recorded in the Gospels in Aramaic. Okay? Now, Aramaic was the language that Jesus would have spoken in his everyday life. It's the language of the people of first century Judea. The Gospels are written in Koine Greek, which is the trade language of the first century. It's kind of like English is used around the world today as a sort of way that people from different languages can communicate uh, to each other. And the three instances are Talitha Kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up, when he raised a young girl from the dead in Matthew 5, 21, sorry, Mark 5, 21 to 23. And you can imagine that occurrence and those words being really etched in the minds and memories of the disciples because this was something pretty amazing. The other is in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays, Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic word that, that we would uh, relate to as dad or even dada. You know, it's that toddler as he runs out when he sees his dad with his arms outstretched, calling out dada, dada. It talks about an intimacy of relationship. And here in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus comes to his crucifixion, there is that intimacy of relationship with God. Uh, you know, even though he's facing, uh, facing his uh, crucifixion. And the third is here on the cross. When Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, uh, lemma sabachthane. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's etched in the minds of the people at the cross because of the anguish in the, it, uh, it, it encapsulates. And because it's so out of character for Jesus, who even in the garden used that intimate Abba. And you know, often people will question the validity of the gospel narratives. They will say, oh, well, they were written many years, many years after the events, and they're just, you know, they're just myths. But in actual fact, when you, uh, when you hear those words in Aramaic, it opens the door to the accounts recorded in the gospel coming from eyewitnesses, from people who were there. And it's a clue, one of many, to the reliability of the Gospels. The second thing is that 
As you may have guessed from our call to worship this morning and from the Old Testament reading this morning, Jesus was quoting the first line of Psalm 22. A psalm which, when you read it, talks very much and very very detailed about the suffering that Jesus was going through. And while it starts with that cry of desolation, did you notice that it finishes with a sense of hope and trust in God? It finishes by saying, He has done it. He's achieved His purposes. Um, Which is echoed in Jesus' saying on the cross in John's Gospel, It is finished. And Jesus, as a Jewish man, would have grown up singing and learning the Psalms by heart. And when we find ourselves in times of great anguish and suffering and pain, the stuff that we've remembered actually comes to mind. You know, in the midst of pain and suffering and tragedy is not the time to have sort of original thoughts. But it's the stuff that we've remembered that comes to mind. That's why even non-churched people, even secular people, want the 23rd Psalm at funerals. I had somebody say, oh, I don't want any of that religious and Bible stuff, but there's that poem, you know, I really like, uh, The Lord is My Shepherd. <laughs> you know? And you go, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> or um, uh, you, you may, well, even in the, uh, on TV in the, in the series Lost, which is probably lost on a lot of you, um, there's a point that as they, they sort of, in the midst of all the, the, what's going on, they stop and they actually quote the 23rd Psalm because it's got that connection, you know. Well, the other one is, you know, the Lord's Prayer. Often people uh, will say that uh, in the midst or after uh, tragedy and difficulty. I don't know if you can remember way back to Princess Diane's funeral. Princess Diana's funeral. But as they started saying the Lord's Prayer in the cathedral, the crowds in the street picked it up. And they said it because somehow it was appropriate to do that in that moment of grief. And our Father, who art in heaven, echoed around the streets of London. Right. And for a Jewish man, saying the first line of a psalm was like shorthand for saying that whole psalm. So Jesus... When Jesus is praying this, that his feeling, he feels the desolation, but it's also that he has that same hope and trust in God. So let's have a look at, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here at the cross, Jesus, who had been betrayed by a close and trusted friend, suffered injustice in court, been rejected by his people, tortured, brutally nailed to that cross, and mocked on all sides, as well as being abandoned by his disciples, his close friends, feels that abandonment and that deep loneliness. He feels as if God has turned away. It's unthinkable, but Christ who called God Abba, which means Father, and who had said, I and the Father are one, now feels separate from God. Jesus identifies fully with the emotional and spiritual side of human suffering. And you can catch a little bit of that uh, and some of that distance in the words that he actually uses to talk about God. Eli, or in Mark's Gospel, it's Eloi. 
which, uh, which is a formal address for God. There's a formality, a distance, rather than the closeness of Abba or Father. And we find it hard to hear that because we wonder if it means that Jesus had despaired and lost all trust in God. Well, the first thing we need to realize is that this saying is first and foremost still a prayer. It's still a relationship with God. And the Jewish bystanders understood that because they believed he was crying out for Elijah to come and save him. Elijah, in Jewish thought, was the one who would come to redeem his people, was the Old Testament understanding of who the Messiah would be like. So they waited to see if he would. And its implication is that despite a lack of presence, there is still trust and faith in God. Still the trust that Jesus had shown in the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed, Father, not my will but yours be done. It's still a prayer of trust because of the context of Psalm 22, which finishes with hope. And when we look at the cross, we can focus on the violence and the physical suffering of crucifixion. But here it opens the window on the depth of spiritual and psychological suffering and emotional suffering as well. And, you know, often people will wonder about the goodness of God who would allow his son to suffer. But in the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We get a sense that not only does Jesus suffer, but in fact, God the Father suffers as well. The Trinity, that community of love at the heart of our understanding of God, where the only way to describe them is one, they're that together, endures the sense of separateness as the whole of the Godhead works to make it possible for us to be brought back into union and relationship with God. It shows not only the depths of God's identification with our human suffering, it shows the depth of God's love for us. Willing to endure the pain and sense of isolation and separation to bring us back into relationship. So we too can become children of God and know God intimately as Abba, as our heavenly parent. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Also offers us a way to uh, look at what is happening on the cross as well. Uh, in terms of uh, ways of understanding the cross, what we call theories of atonement, we might talk about the fact that as Jesus had prayed, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, which we looked at as our first uh, saying in this series, that God answers that prayer by laying our wrongdoing on Jesus, which means that Jesus uh, also experiences the separate separation from God that we do, because God is holy and righteous and cannot abide with sin. But by doing that and dying in our place, he prayed, paid the price for what we have done wrong and in return offers us relationship and his righteousness by grace for us. And my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, also speaks to the very heart of the human condition. As we said before, it's a very human prayer. It's a very human response to issues of trouble and suffering on a personal and a societal level. Where are you, God? Feeling that absence of God, wondering, where are you, God? Have you gone home, put your feet up in front of the telly, and fallen asleep? 
But using it here, Jesus opens up the possibility for us to see that having those feelings and experiencing that, that absence and having those questions and doubts does not stop us trusting and having faith. Old Testament Walter Brueggemann talks of seeing a process that people go through in three types of psalms in the book of Psalms. The process when we deal with tragedy and difficult times. He says there are three types of psalm. The first is that he sees are the psalms of uh, orientation, the, what we might call the happy clappies, when everything is as it should be and we're full of joy. Adrian Plass, I've gone off my script uh, there here, Max. Adrian Plass, uh, in one of his devotions, uh, talked to a friend of his who said, oh, I go to a happy church. We're happy all the time. And it's really bad because there doesn't seem to be any place for sorrow and suffering and difficulties. You know? That's not the case in the Psalms. Brueggemann says that then he sees Psalms of disorientation, the laments, where people are wrestling with the fact that things have gone wrong. And the metaphor that he uses, it's like going out to the beach and going out into the waves and being picked up by one wave and spun round, and you, you know what that's like? being spun round and round and round and dumped. And you just try and get it back up, for, up again and the next wave in the set comes through and does it all over again. And you just wonder, which way is up? Where are you, God? And the only time and energy you've got is to try and grab that sense of breath before the next wave hits. And it's very hard to be still and in that time be aware of God's presence. But God is there with us. And he says that there's a third, um, third lot of psalms, which seems to be the end of that process. There are psalms that he calls psalms of reorientation, where it may be that the, the problem and the difficulty has not gone away. But the psalmist has come to a place of being quiet and at peace and is aware that they can face what is going on because of the abiding presence of God. They trust in the reality that God is with them. They trust, if they were a New Testament psalmist, in the fact that Jesus said, I will always be with you to the end of the age. They trust the fact that God has fulfilled his promise to send his spirit to be with us. But that's a process I think we go through as we wrestle with difficulty in times of sorrow. And we can see that at the cross. And I've got to say here, um, spoiler alert, because we see it in some of Jesus' later sayings, in it is finished, and into your hands do I commend my spirit. He's got come to that place. The second thing it says to us is that in those times of darkness and difficulty, we can bring our prayers to God knowing that we bring them to someone who has experienced the depth of human pain and suffering, who understands and identifies with that sense of desolation. It may sound a bit flippant to say it, but it's profoundly helpful in the depths to realize that our God knows where we are because Jesus has been there. As Adam Hamilton puts it, in his book, Final Words, we remember that the one to whom we pray in our darkest hour knew firsthand 
the feelings of hopelessness, doubt and despair. And we remember that his cry of why came from a psalm that points towards God's ultimate deliverance. And maybe you're in that position today. Know that God hears and understands. And finally, Jesus' example of being willing to identify with our suffering invites us to follow him into places where we risk knowing and feeling and experiencing the abandonment of God. To go with faith that Je- with Jesus in those situations and that because he leads us there that uh, he can bring his resurrection presence and kingdom change to those situations. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor, theologian and writer in the 1930s. His book, The Cost of Discipleship, was a bestseller and it still sells large numbers of editions today. And Bonhoeffer was doing a speaking tour of America just before the Second World War. And while he was doing this tour, people were receiving uh, news that Hitler had started to crack down not only on Jews, but on Protestant churches who were prepared to speak against his regime and his excesses. And so they were scared for Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And they, so they implored, implored uh, Bonhoeffer to stay in America, to stay safe. And Bonhoeffer refused and went back to Germany. His critique of the church in America, and boy, it's a challenging critique, is that they were afraid of suffering. They were afraid of suffering. And for Bonhoeffer, that meant going home and being censored and being imprisoned and then a couple of weeks before the end of the Second World War being taken out and killed. But we know from his letters from prison that in that time, as Bonhoeffer found himself in this prison, as he cared for uh, his fellow prisoners, as he cared for his guards and those who mistreated him, he discovered a great depth and richness of the, the Sermon on the Mount, which he'd written The Cost of Discipleship about. And he actually started to live it out in a profound way. And he was aware of Christ's presence breaking into that God-forsaken place. Archbishop Welby's words in that BBC interview could have come across as distant and while well-meaning, rather hollow. Uh, Virtue signaling, I think, is the in sort of critique of people who say things without experience. Except in the same interview, He spoke of not having that privileged, protected position during the pandemic, but rather that he had volunteered and chosen to work as an assistant chaplain in a hospital. And he spoke of sitting and holding the hand of a woman as she died from COVID, of praying with the mother of a premature baby, hopefully not just straight after, but of a premature baby in the same hospital who was deeply anxious about her child's safety. You know, that might sound heroic. Maybe you think I might have a bit of a clergy crush on Jason, uh, Justin Welby, and it may well be. <laughs> Sorry, boom, Where's the drummer when you need him? <laughs> but uh, the amazing thing, again, is that, uh, you know, Welby, when he was asked about hope, 
uh, in that situation. Uh, not surprisingly, he said that his hope was the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but he also said it was things like the courage and compassion of the medical team that he prayed with at the start of their shift. It was the concern and care of people for one another in the community and the growing desire and determination that he saw in the nation uh, and in the medical system of making that, that medical system more just and open for everyone in the wake of COVID. The, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was answered through Christ's presence with ordinary people as they stepped in, in and served in those dark, abandoned places that could easily feel, sorry, I shouldn't say, those dark places which could easily feel abandoned by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ identifies with the depth of our pain and suffering, our doubt and questioning, that sense of desolation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God suffers that sense of abandonment so we may be brought back into relationship. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We have a God who understands and has been there when we pray from our dark places, who can be trusted to be with us. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus invites us to follow him into those places with trust in the resurrection hope of Jesus Christ. Amen. Phil, I invite you to uh, lead us in a, uh, a prayer, uh, sorry, a, um, a, a, a hymn, and uh, then we will be celebrating communion. Shall we stand?